Where is your sting? That's a powerful, powerful statement. Well, it's good to be here this morning for our traditional Easter service, to be with the saints. Thank you for participating already in this act of worship by bringing your flowers and helping to beautify the cross. Um, Special thanks to Diane and all the crew that blessed us with breakfast this morning. Those that brought food, it was a great turnout. And it's, it's just a blessing to be with the body of Christ as we celebrate this day. And thanks to Dwight who sets up for this event and the Monday Thursday church as well. There's so many, I mean, a service as well. There's so many people that serve behind the scenes and we just come and we benefit from it. And we just think it's, uh, you just add water and the church looks like this. Um, but there are a lot of people that serve us to bring this about, and we appreciate that and bless the Lord for that. Well, um, we're going to look at Scripture this morning. We're going to talk about the resurrection, talk about a living hope. But before we do, just a little story about Doris and Marty. Doris and Marty were in... An Easter service one Sunday sitting towards the front and little Marty turned to his mother. He was fidgeting in his seat as the pastor began his resurrection sermon, turned to his mother, says, um, <clears throat> Mom, can we leave now? And she says quietly as she can. No, Marty, the pastor hasn't even finished his sermon yet. And he says, but um, I'm feeling really sick. I, I think I'm going to think I'm going to throw up. She says, oh, oh, oh dear, um, well, uh, just quietly make your way to the front door and, and go behind the church and, and uh, throw up behind the bushes then if you feel like you're going to, to throw up. <clears throat> and so Marty scoots out from the row and disappears. And he comes back 40 or 50 seconds later and sits next to his mother. And she was kind of prof- and she looked at him and she said, did, did you throw up? And he said, yeah, kind of ashamed of himself, a little embarrassed. And, and she said, well, how, how could you get from here through the front door and all the way to the bushes that, and, and be back here so quickly? And he said, well, God is good, Mother. I, I didn't have to go even have to go outside the church. I went to the front door and there was this beautiful box that said, for the sick. We are in the age of God's redemptive plan where we still do get sick and we have sick boxes for the sick. We have boxes for the poor and we still suffer. Uh, We're in that age where we still have dreams squashed. Is this is this working? It's not working. Battery shot on it. Well, do the best we can. But we're in that age where we still have evil and suffering and we still have to fight temptation and put up with the father of lies and go battle battle against the devil. But we're also aware in the Gospels that another age has dawned, as Matthew has reminded us time and time again. And it is the age of the king. And the king has come into this messy, broken world. And through his resurrection power, he has began to heal it. And as Kevin reminded us this morning, the way we know this is true is through the resurrection. 
And we are here today because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the center of all history. The resurrection is the center of this church. The resurrection is the center message of the gospel. And we are here because our lives have been changed. And we continue to see the resurrection power change people's lives. So are we now where Christ has led. We sang, hallelujah. Following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the graves, the skies. Hallelujah. May God give us a sense this morning as we crack open his word of the intense power of the resurrection. My text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, 8, 9. I'm really not sure where I'm going to stop. Uh, But somewhere right in there. Yeah, it looks like maybe the end of seven, but I'm going to kind of cheat a little bit and look at that passage. First Peter, chapter one, beginning with verse three. Peter says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. Uh, This isn't a text that is often used uh, for an Easter message. But as I just prayed to God, Lord, there's so much in your word. Where do I turn? I wanted something practical, something that. As a result of the resurrection that we could we could hear, we could know, we could embody and take home with us almost like a a resurrection gift. It's something practical that because of the resurrection that we now have and it's something that we continue to have access to. And that something is hope, the living hope that has come to us as a result of the resurrection. And hope, true hope, not false hope, not worldly hope, but true biblical hope is in short supply these days. As we look at the messiness of this world, we have made it messy and continue to make it messy. Because of our own actions, we disappoint ourselves and we disappoint each other. And so often, true hope is in short supply. But Peter is excited In this first letter of his to share something with the saints and verse one talks about to all of the saints scattered throughout different geographical locations. So this is for everybody. And he's very excited to share what is on his heart as he writes this letter. And rather than giving the message and then praising God for the content, he just worships God right in the very beginning in verse Three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's it's worship first and then the message. We sometimes we um, have to think about in the church. What do we do first? Should we do the worship first and then the message? Should we we come into the presence of God and then hear his word? Or should we hear the word and then as a result, 
worship God. And I guess it's your choice. But for Peter, he couldn't wait. Knowing that what was on his heart and what he was going to write. So there is this outburst of heartfelt praise and adoration for the resurrected God. And it's because he realizes and he wants the saints to know that they have been born again through resurrection power to a hope that is living. So what is hope or what is a living hope? And why is it so important? Why would God impress or inspire the Apostle Peter to write to all the saints of all time about this living hope? Is it something that we really need? Is it that Important, And do we have this living hope in us this morning? Why would we even need it? Well, he hints at it in verse 6. When after he praises God and he talks about being born again and the living hope that we have. In this you rejoice. We're rejoicing about these things. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so he's aware that there are that that they're now this is their now they are grieving over things. There's some persecution going on and we all have our here and now we all have the day that we live in our present that which we are experiencing and that's that which we see. And he's saying the time we need hope the most where it pops its head up where we're dependent upon it is when life gets harder than usual, when trials come in. We need hope all the time, but we really need it during these times of pressure, when the here and now. And so this hope is there for us, and it's an opportunity for us to to pull the glories of the future into our present here and now. We're not stealing a piece of heaven And we're really not even borrowing the glories of heaven and the future that Christ has secured for us through the resurrection. But it's like Christ just opens the curtain for us, the door a little bit, and he he gives us access to it all the time. We don't have the actual inheritance today or now, but we can see it and we have great hope because it's there for us. So we can get real close and it's this anticipation of the future that Christ is keeping for us and secured for us. That in the here and now, no matter what we're experiencing, can revive our hearts and our souls. Because we know what's there, we know what's coming. So, biblical hope is this anticipation of this. And it's something that we can have in part without having the real thing, even though we can't see it. A hope isn't something that's seen. Romans 8, 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. <clears throat> but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, anticipation, eagerness. It's something we don't see, but we know so. I thought about this and I thought about my life and 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 when I was a, a young man, there was a, a point in time when I had great hopes in my heart that uh, Lisa and I would would get come together and and be married and raise a family. That was my great hope that we would do be able to do life together 
in Christ, and we were just dating at the time. So it wasn't a reality. It wasn't the here and now that we could see. And so I looked forward into the future. I'm going to I'm going to get louder than the person in the back who's also if so elevate my voice. But I, I looked to the future. That's what I wanted and with great anticipation and excitement. So at one time I had to make a decision to, to treat her in such a way that that would become a reality. That's what I wanted to see. And I no longer have to hope for that because uh, 28 years and, and four children later, it is a reality to me. That which I hope for now is the here and now in the scene. So now I hope for many more years that are unseen, but I can anticipate. And that's what Peter is talking about. There's this hope that we can't we have because we can't see our future. We can't see what God has for us in heaven. But but we can experience and rejoice, Peter says. In this you rejoice even when we're suffering and facing hardships. Because of what Christ has put in the bank for us, you might say. And I think it's a good reminder to the saints because in essence he's saying, you know, believers, saints, you're not so strong that you can handle the here and now without looking into the future. Without drawing from and anticipating the goodness that God has for us. In the future, we, we need to dip into that. We need to, to know that Christ is keeping it for us by his resurrection power. And it's a, a living hope. It's a living hope because it's eternal. It's, it, it's undefiled. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to disappear in any way. The power of God is keeping it absolutely perfect and fresh and eternal. But it's also living in the sense that we can live it out. It can be lived out in our lives. So I see this living hope as a, a gift of the resurrection. One of the many gifts of the resurrection is this living hope that Christ has for us. Biblical hope is a sure thing. It's, it's a fact. And no, we can't see it now, but it's a fact. And so we can benefit it from it now. It's not wishful thinking. It's not altering your life and making decisions based on wishful thinking like, well, I I'm hoping I'm going to win the lottery. Uh, so I'm going to put my house on the market and start laying the foundation for my mansion and quit my job because I'm going to have so much money. I don't know what I'm going to do with that's wishful thinking. And a lot of uh, hopes are crushed with that kind of thinking and. Money runs low with that kind of thinking because you're trying to make it happen by shedding out the money. It's a false hope. And we can prop ourselves up with false hopes. And then when we really need them and, and we go to put our weight on them, they come out from under us and we, crawl, we, we, we fall. And we get hurt. We're often crushed because we've propped ourselves up with, with something that's not... Real And it leaves us feeling lonely and hopeless. This is a hope that is being reserved for us by Christ. So let's <clears throat> let's develop this passage a little bit. Peter's talking to people and he realizes that in, in some of these geographical locations, even though the church is still young, 
it's there are already areas where the saints are being persecuted. I mean, that quick, that soon, the, the church really was birthed in persecution. And so there are people that are turning to Christ, but as a result of turning to Christ, some of them are losing their lives. Um, they're losing their, their property, their, their homes. They're no longer safe. They're not at peace with some of their neighbors or, or their acquaintances. And so even maybe some friends have turned into enemies. It's been a life-altering thing that has happened. It's hardship has set in. There are various trials. And Peter wants them to know that if, if, if you're going to expect to get through the things that life very well may bring you. In fact, what we're learning about the Beatitudes is, or at least I'm drawing the conclusion as I'm reading these scriptures, the, the more serious we get about God, the more likely we are to be persecuted. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, when, when you just really start getting more and more serious and pressing in and to be like Christ and, and to, to bring that faith Alive, the more likely we are to be persecuted. And Peter realizes that. And so, in order to get through the different hardships and trials of life, we need a living hope. And without it, we will be tr- we, life will just come at us from all sor- sides and, and envelop us and just push us down and push us down and push us down until we are hopeless and we don't see a ray of light. All we can see in front of us is our our problems and our pain and our suffering. And life can't just be that. It has to be more. And it is more. This is the kind of hope that will get us through the most grievous of times. Now, if we think about our history, we could point to dozens and dozens of periods in our history where life was just, uh, that section was just a terrible time. And, and we have great compassion for what the people suffered during that time. But I think one of the most hopeless periods or seemingly hopeless periods of our history had to be the Holocaust. And we're still watching movies about it. We're still reading books about it. And, and it's something really in our age. Perhaps that's why. We don't have to reach back that far to it. And recently I mentioned the Holocaust and one of the messages <clears throat> when um, a Jewish man just broke down, became speechless in the middle of a very important war trial because he faced a person that was kind of the main organizer of the entire Holocaust. And it just broke him down because he saw that he was just a man. He wasn't this beast that He thought only a beast could be responsible for such atrocities. And he broke down because he realized he's just a human. In other words, yes, humanity is capable of such things, all of us. And Mike Wallace poignantly ended that 60 minutes interview or section by saying Eichmann is in all of us. And that was a Holocaust era event. But among those in the camps, the concentration camps, who also survived was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish um, man, a young man at this time. He was a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst, and he was in, he was uh, 
very thoroughly trained to observe people and how they react in certain situations in hopes of helping them understand and help them through any kind of problems based on how they responded to life. And based on his own experience in the camps and based on what he observed by all of those around him that were also in this camp, he noticed that there were four particular ways that seem to evolve uh, based on how people handled suffering. <clears throat> and one of the ways of all, by the way, all of this can be read in his book. It was a I think it was a bestseller uh, written in 1946, I believe, um, very popular in that day, of course, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And it chronicles his time in the camp. But he says one of the way that people responded to this terrible suffering was to grow hard hearted and brutal. And some of this is my paraphrase, but and I will quote him, but to, to just grow hard hearted and brutal to look out to to, um, to just care about your own survival, not care about other people, use other people for your own survival. You have to kind of. Become very hard hearted and turn off some emotions and feelings because you got to be mean and dirty to other people in order to keep yourself alive. So they they decided to look after themselves, um, to bully others, to steal food, to steal whatever they needed and uh, to, to stay alive. It was an every man out for himself kind of attitude. And he noticed that even people that. Uh, had been known as nice people their whole lives under this kind of heat when the soul is pressed in like this became very brutal. So brutal conditions can produce brutal people. So that was one response, kind of a survival at the expense of others. And then another response that he noticed was... Um, some people just gave up. They, they just gave up all hope. He says, I quote, many prisoners just lost all hope and with all hope lost spiritual hold of things. Usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced camp inmates. And we all feared this moment in our friends Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade, uh, go out for ground um, and inspections. No entreaties, no blows, no threats of any kind had any effect on this person that had lost hope. They, they just laid there. The blows of the enemy would not move them. Our enticing words of encouragement and love and care would not move them anymore. They just had no hope. And he gives an example. He says, my senior block warden, a well-known composer and libertist. We all know what a libertist is. I had to look it up. Someone who composes lyrics for like operas and plays and so forth. This senior block warden. Once a composer, he um, he told Frankel, he said that he had a dream 
He had a dream that the war was going to end March 30th of that year. And he was very convinced of this dream. And it was a revelation to him. He believed that he had had a revelation. But as the, as the day drew near, though, it became clear from news reports the war was not going to end. And on March 29th, he suddenly began to run a high temperature. And on March 30th, his day, he lost consciousness. And on March 31st, he was dead from a loss of hope. A loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to, to external sicknesses. To, to all the diseases that were in the camp. And so... Nice people can can turn brutal and some people that were filled with life can just that's it. I give I give lose all fight and shrivel up and die. The third way to get through was to think if I can just survive, I can get all my hopes back. I can get all of my losses back. He says, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, fortune and positions in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. If they could just hang on, they'd get it back, their hope back. But after liberation, many found when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they had longed for. Many people went into deep depression for the rest of their lives after the liberation and some even committed suicide. So many of us said to ourselves in the camp that no earthly happiness could compensate for all we had suffered. And yet afterwards, we were not prepared for the tent, for the disillusionment. And so some said to themselves, this is temporary and if I can just hang on through this impossible situation, all the things that I lost will come back to me and my life will be the same. The problem is that it wasn't like that for everybody in their relationships and their jobs and their properties and their possessions and the thing that they considered the goodness of life that they once had and lost. It was forever changed. And so that the very thing that they hinged their life upon and lived for wasn't there for them. And so they were never the same. They never got the joy or the meaning or the significance or the purpose for living was never resurrected. It, it wiped them out. He said, but there was a fourth group. It was the smallest group of a minority of people. And these people were able to somehow keep their strength, their inner strength, and it enabled them to press on. It, it enabled them, though their bodies wasted away, it enabled their minds to still think clearly. It enabled them to still do good things and to be considerate to others, though it might mean that they themselves lose out or suffer. It enabled them to rise above the hopelessness. He called it, he called it an inner liberty. 
And they weren't all smiley, like, isn't it a beautiful day as they climbed out of their lice-infected beds? No, it wasn't all life as a bowl of cherries. They, they were sullen and sunken. But they, there was just this inner hope that they had. This meaning of life, it was rattled. It was rattled as much as a life can be rattled, but that core wasn't touched somehow. The foundation of their being seemed to still be preserved, though the darkness and evil pressed in from every side and, and tried and tried and tried to penetrate it for all it was worth. And so as a, a psychotherapist, he wanted to know why. I mean, he, he, this was what his life was about. Why do people think the way they do? Why do they respond the way they do? Why is it this, that this minority has this inner hope they, they can live like this? How is this possible? What created the difference? And people would come to him in the camp and they would say, how? How, how can I bear this suffering? How can I do it? How can I go another day? What are my other options? He says, life in a concentration camp tears Tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. You peel away layers of circumstance to get at what's really, really there. And that's what had happened. What's the foundation? He says life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. So in our core and in our foundation, he concluded, there has to be something in there that this life can't get to no matter what happens. Even as we are suffering and even perhaps in our moments of death, there's got to be a bigger meaning and Purpose. He would say to his friends, remember, somebody's looking down on you from heaven, a friend, a wife, a spouse or God, perhaps we must not disappoint them. Uh, to my knowledge, he, I, I looked it up. He never made a profession of faith. Um, it was he talked about God and some people said, oh, yes, he's a believer. And other people said, no, he never made a profession of faith, but many pastors of that day read his book and they see this conclusion. His conclusions are much of the truth and the reality of the New Testament. See, the gospel's true and real, and this is God's universe. And so if it's true and real, it exposes itself. And these groups, reality was exposing itself under these circumstances because it lined up with truth based on what we believe it's going to have an effect on us. And what he's really saying is that those who what we really are and what we live for really deep down in here is exposed at different times of our lives. And it's most often exposed during hardship because you strip these other things away. When you take them away, do you have anything left? Is there hope in there? What's our future? What are we really living for? So the way you see and hope for the future determines on how you handle the here and now. And Peter wants the saints to know that. You know, what you think about the future is going to determine how you react and respond to your day, to your moment. Whatever your here and now is, whatever you see, whatever you are Experiencing. 
Where is your hope? Because if we hope in the wrong things, as exemplified in this example of Victor Frankl's analysis, if we hope in the wrong things, sooner or later we will be crushed and we will find ourselves hopeless. Where is our hope? You know, perhaps we could become brutal without the right kind of hope. And think that it, life is just all about us and our survival. And at any means, we will take advantage of whatever is out there. Or perhaps we might face a period of life where we decide it's not worth it. I'm just going to give up. Because our hope was in the here and now and getting that back. Or the third group who said, no, if I can hold on, I'm going to be restored. But we can't control life. We can't control relationships. How do we know that on the what's on the other end of this particular day or this particular trial? We could also wind up disillusioned. So what's the answer to living hope? We have to have something in our foundation that is beyond this world. That this world can't touch. And that's what Christ the king brings into this world. It's the kingdom of God. And Peter wants the saints to be mindful of the hope that the kingdom of God brings to them. It's above all this. Turning cutthroat isn't the answer. Giving up isn't the answer. Trying desperately to restore the things that once made you happy isn't the answer. The foundation, the core of our character comes from where we hang our hopes Our hopes need to be in Christ, in God. And it's it's an inheritance that is for us. And the something that we rejoice over is Christ the King and His kingdom that is much bigger than our here and now. It's much more glorious and it has more promise than anything that we could ever imagine in our own lifetime. And we often don't think about it. We don't use it to spark us or inspire us. Sometimes it gets clouded over with things of the world or we might stray off of the path. But it is a living hope for believers. Here's an example that might help us understand what Peter's talking about. Timothy Keller says this. Imagine here are two people side by side. You give them the same job 85 hours a week. Same conditions, no vacations, no benefits. You pay one $30,000 a year, you pay the other $30 million a year. One of them is going to say, I can't take this. I can't bear this anymore. The other one will say, what a breeze. Why? Is one more disciplined? One a harder worker? Yeah. One is more disciplined, but Why? One will be able to endure, in fact, even consider to breeze because of the future, because of the hope. You see how the future, that which is beyond, determines our attitude every day, our decisions of what we're going to do with the life as God brings it to us. And sadly, most of us, for most of us, our hope is our circumstance. 
Our hope is our, 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 our joy is our circumstance. But that's not a living hope. <laughs> because if we lose that circumstances, we just lost our hope if our joy is our circumstance. So he's saying believe. In this that Christ has for you and has given you and is keeping it for you. Though your faith may be tested. And what's the result? Verse 7. Though your faith may be tested, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That praise and that glory and honor is not Christ's. It's what Christ has gained for us. So all of the pleasures and the honor and the praise that Christ deserved based on the life that he lived, the saints receive as an inheritance. So they get embraced, they get loved on, they get doted on. They're enriched by the riches of heaven, by their heavenly father. They get that nod of approval, that nod of right standing. Knowing it's there for us changes the decisions we make. It changes how we look at material things. It changes how we look at the suffering and the joys that we experience throughout life. It changes the way we do relationships. It changes the way we might anticipate things. It changes us. How do you get such a hope, a living hope? By embracing the gospel. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And that is when we have this hope. My good future is in heaven. And we are absolutely guaranteed of it. Lastly, before Peter wrote his first letter, he preached his first sermon. And one of the things that he said in this sermon in Acts, it was right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. He says this, God raised him up, speaking about Christ. Ties into the living hope. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for Christ for death, for the grave, to hold Christ. Not a possibility. Now that's resurrection power. Now for the rest of us who go into the grave, we could say it is not possible for that person to come out of that grave on his own. Just not going to happen. It can't happen. And Peter says just the opposite. When Christ goes into the ground, it is absolutely impossible for the ground to hold him. Now that's resurrection power. What's powerful for you? When you think of power, what's the, in your mind, what is the most powerful thing in the universe? All different things come to our minds. We might think we, we saw a storm or a flood, raging winds, tornadoes can, can wipe out acres and acres of land, can wipe out natural disasters, can wipe out many, many lives. Uh, we might think of the, the powerful force of a well-equipped army, which is a terrifying thing. And you're on the opposite side with all of the um, perhaps the mother of all bombs and other equipment that you might have to face. It's, face. it's just power. A marching army shakes the ground. What is the most powerful thing in your mind? Or perhaps a, a nuclear warhead that could wipe out an entire country, small country. These things are Powerful, but what is the most powerful thing if you really think about it 
in this universe, death. All of the other things can bring death, but it's death. You can't escape death. The death rate is 100%. With the exception, few exceptions in Scripture of supernatural power. All the armies, all the plagues and natural disasters don't change anything about the power of death. It maintains its hold on humanity because all man is destined to die once. Hebrews 9.27 tells us. And after that to face judgment. Though we might... An early death is sad. An unexpected death is sad. But death awaits all of us. Absolutely nobody escapes it. Nobody except one. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the exception to that. Like Like the big fish in Jonah that we're learning about in Sunday school, the ground... In essence, just spit Christ back out. Spit him out. It couldn't hold him. It was time for him to come up out of the grave. Now, why did Jesus have that which no other man had? Why could the grave not hold him? Because of resurrection power? Yes, absolutely. But it's a little more than that. We'll close with this. Based on the covenant that God made with man, this universe, the the entire universe, even creation groans over what's happening with redemptive history. I love the way the Bible brings even creation to life. Uh, There's this covenant. And when man sins against God, surely you shall die. So it's this curse. It's kind of like the deep magic that C.S. Lewis talks about in the Chronicles of Narnia. Death is for those who have broken the law of God. They have failed to obey him. They have failed to love them with all their heart, mind and soul. You shall surely die. Christ satisfied this law of God by perfect obedience and perfect love, by the way. Jesus was not a Pharisee who who just was marking his obedience off of the list. See, Lord, I, Father God, I obeyed you in this. He, he was obeying God with perfection, but a heartfelt, genuine love, which is a requirement of the law. Not just to do what God says to do, but to love God with your entire being. And Christ did that. And he satisfied the law in that way. He loved God and he loved his neighbor as himself. And so into the ground goes... Something that the ground had never held before. Because every human being, and Christ was man, every human being that had gone into the ground since the beginning of creation be, be long there, deserved to go there because of the guilt, because of the transgression that was in that body. And so into the ground goes something that had never held before, seen before, however you want to look at it. Into the, into the ground, it's like the ground is aware of what's touching it, what's in it, the tomb. And it reminds me of Genesis back in um, the early chapters when God says to Cain, what is this you have done? The blood is crying up to me from the ground regarding the innocent blood of Abel. Cain slew Abel. 
And so it's like the ground was aware of the blood. Now it had felt blood before, but now it has innocent Abel's blood. And it's like something isn't right here and it's crying out to God and injustice has been done. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the writer of Hebrews says, how much more the sprinkled blood of Christ, how much louder the voice when the sprinkled blood of Christ touches the ground it speaks louder than the voice of the blood of Abel because it's more it's, it's, it's innocent. The ground has never experienced anything like the per, perfect person or body of Christ, the perfect love. So it can't hold it. it. It by law, by covenant law, has no right to hold the body of Christ because he's innocent. And the curse is that only the guilty die. And so this great cry goes up, so to speak, from the tomb or from the grave of tremendous injustice. Something is terribly afoul with this picture when you have a perfect being in the grave. Now, he died on our behalf, but he was sinless. He took our sins on himself, but he remained sinless. And so it's like the ground is screaming. It had never experienced such a thing. Wailing in protest and the ground will not hold it it has no claim upon him the ground cannot hold perfect the grave cannot it's impossible christ had to come forth and that's the reason that's the reason that you and i will be resurrected if we believe in christ he will, not, he will not go to heaven. He doesn't go to heaven and leave us behind. He goes to heaven and secures a place for us and a future for us. It's something that he has gained for us. He, he won't, it's indistinguishable, it's, it's imperishable. And at the sound of his voice, his authoritative voice, he will speak to the ground in essence, so to speak. And just as Moses spoke to Pharaoh, let my people go. The time will come when Jesus will speak to the universe, speak to the ground, if you will. It's time. Let my people go and we will rise and be with him for eternity. Christ will not leave us behind. And that is the future. That is the living hope that we have because Christ has been raised from the dead. So you see, this changes things, changes the way we look at life, changes the decisions we make. It's based on what Christ has gifted us through the power of the resurrection for our future. And I pray that all here will leave with a living hope. And that living hope comes to us by embracing the gospel, the good news, putting our faith in the Savior that has paid the penalty of our sin and clothe us with righteousness so that we can be in right standing with God the Father. If you do not have that hope in you this morning, I pray that you will trust in the risen, living Savior today. In light of this life, in light of the, the vibrancy that we've been reminded of, just the goodness of God that we are reminded of on Resurrection Day, I encourage you 
to give your life to Christ. And leave here with the living hope. So let the power of God change us utterly. He is risen. May God bless the preaching of his word. And I've asked uh, as we continue to worship the Lord, we will not have praise and prayer and announcements this morning. Um, Kevin's going to close us in a benediction. But before that, I'm going to ask if Shoko and um, our new believer, our new Saint Ashley, who recently gave her life to the Lord, would come and minister to us through sign language. It's it's kind. I just see this as a uh, our last opportunity, kind of closing out the conclusion to Holy Week, if you will. Or it's it's our last time to just contemplate and worship the risen Lord as we think about all that we have experienced this week with the cross and the tomb. So if you'd come.